Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. I'm your host, Stella Bales. In this podcast series, I'll be interviewing experts in emerging areas of PR. We'll be taking those hot topics in public relations, dispelling any myths, breaking down the jargon, so you are completely clued up and ready to speak to your stakeholders by the time you reach the office. If you have any questions around the episode, please feel free to tweet me at Stella Bales. Welcome to the PR Resolution Podcast. We are back. You can hear in my voice, I'm pretty excited about this. Probably because we had a little bit of a break, but also because this episode is pretty exciting. It's actually in response to an article I read last Friday by Mark Ritson, which was on Marketing Week. It was looking at whether share of voice should be replaced by something called share of search. Starting with share of voice, that's a term that we're familiar with in public relations. It's a way of looking at how a brand has been mentioned in media in comparison to its competitors. Share of voice in public relations is worked out quite differently and analysed quite differently to other areas of marketing. I was quite interested in this and also based on my knowledge of Google, SEO, search, which uh, any regular listeners know that I have a background in, it's kind of split equally between public relations and search. I was really interested in this because initially I thought this may be a way that we could integrate our measurement, which means more fairly distributed budget. Step forward, Russell McCaithy. He's the founder of Ringside and my trusty genius in marketing attribution whenever I need to learn more in that area. Any regular listeners might remember that we did a podcast at Christmas together and that was all about marketing attribution and how public relations can fit into that. So when I read the article on Share of Search, it did make me wonder whether this could be the gateway for PR and whether we can start to measure better and, as I say, really fit in within the way that marketing are measuring their work too. So have a listen to Russell's insights on how he's been doing it for his clients and also our ideas of where PR does fit into this. I'd love to hear what you think. Let me know after you hear this episode. Hey, thank you for joining me on the PR Resolution Podcast, Russell. This is actually our second podcast that we've done. Slightly um, more relaxed environment this time. (laughs) Um, Yeah, we don't have all those people... (laughs) drinking around us this time. <laughs> well we were trying to talk about something quite complex so it was attribution um, but this time I am so keen to get your thoughts on the quite broad topic of share of voice and um, this so for the listeners I got in touch with Russell after I saw the article which you guys might have seen it was an article that was in Mask Marketing Week last week Um, by Mark Ritson and he was asking whether it's time for a share of search to replace share of voice in the way that we uh, measure and monitor in, in marketing and this led me to sort of really explore first of all share a voice the differences between how we in the PR industry use share a voice um, in comparison to other areas of marketing because it really highlighted in the article that it seems like there's some pretty big differences even though it has the same label but then also um, to explore share of search I think for many of you you might know that I don't just work on coverage book also work on Answer the Public, which is a search insight tool, and also I have a background of search and PR. So this is quite an interesting area for me, and I really want to 
jump in and get Russell's um, thoughts because I know that Russell, from anyone who listened to the last podcast, he is an absolute expert in how marketing is measured and um, works closely with all sorts of different types of organisations and brands in how they can measure success in the different types of marketing that they do. And I know, Russell, that um, from the work that you do, you have actually been looking at share of search for quite some time for your clients. But before we jump there, let's go back a step and explore share of voice. So I think this is probably going to be a recap for the listeners, but share of voice has been something that we've done in PR for quite some time. And it can be done in different ways. So depending on what the activity is, if there is, so if somebody is um, doing some activity within um, social media, then at the end of that, that campaign, they could then look at their brand, select, hand select some competitor brands, and then look at mentions and how they're talked about in social media. Also, if they're just looking at how they are doing within the industry, so even before before a campaign to maybe set strategy again doing the same kind of insight work and then there's the media side of things as well so more news articles so um, the likes of Cision and Trendkite have an automated service of brand mentions and again manually put in your competitors and track and then there's also the human side of it uh, people like Steph Bridgman and experienced media analysts and other services like that who were who would manually read articles um, and look at brand mentions. Uh, and, and I guess with that side of things helps because you can actually see the context of, of that mention. So that's a very quick top line from a PR side of things. And now I really want to hand over to Russell to say, what's the differences between your share of voice, um, the way that you do that in, in advertising and other parts of marketing to PR? Yeah, I think... Listening to all of those things makes me cringe a bit <laughs> at the 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 levels that that people have to go to to see and calculate a share of voice in PR. I think because we have such a huge crossover between a lot of the fundamentals within SEO and PR, um, and yet the data sets that SEOs use versus the data sets that PR uses, there is obviously a crossover and there's a number of PRs that use the same resources, but there tends to be the metrics that are used within PR in most cases aren't the same that the metrics that an SEO is questioned on and it's the key KPIs that they use. And the kind of question behind this is what is the goal of uh, having share of voice as a metric, um, whether it's a KPI or not, if it's just a, an indicator, like the whole point of it being an indicator of performance, hence KPI, does it actually show success? Because if you look at a, as you just said, like you've got a campaign that runs for, say, a four-week period, and then you look at your performance against your competitors in that four-week period, there's no surprise that you're going to outperform on this very specific thing that you're looking at for that period of time. Now, what uh, we tend to see in the SEO industry is that they, there is an awareness that changes have a longer-term impact, and it's not just looking back at the performance of a particular campaign in isolation, but actually, how does that impact the bigger picture? Are we 
ranking for more terms is the kind of older school way of viewing this, but are we receiving more traffic from sources in that category is one of the first things that I would look at and say, actually, when we do a number of campaigns to benefit a certain category underneath the brand, can we monitor that? And the answer to that is we can cleanly and clearly see a performance increase or decrease uh, category level and assign some of that back to the activities and the campaigns that were done at that time. So yeah, just on that, um, just to, because I know you're saying rankings, just to be really clear to some people who aren't um, familiar with SEO, we're talking about Google rankings. So if there's, it'd be great if there's like a little example there, like a, an industry example of, uh, of, of a category. Um, if you're working for an e-commerce company and say you're working for uh, a homeware brand, so they sell tables, they sell lamps, lampshades, etc. Um, it could be that you see an opportunity under um, coffee tables that you aren't necessarily getting as much traffic as you consider you deserve, which is a very interesting way of viewing it, but you think you deserve more traffic. So you either, from an SEO perspective, you would approach this in the sense of uh, the core fundamentals. So what content do we have on site? What uh, linking do we have internally on site? What linking do we have externally? And this is where PR comes into play significantly. And then you have the technical SEO in the sense of what have you done behind the scenes of the pages to improve how the search engines view that page itself. Now, from the external linkings perspective, that's where PR and SEO cross over significantly, because the whole point of this is, do you provide the wider internet space? And I'm trying to be very broad here. Do you provide a uh, some content on the site, whether that be within that category itself or linking to that category content that is newsworthy off-site. So whether that be that you reach out to publications, you reach out to journalists, and you give them a reason to link to that page or category or multiple pages within that category should form part of that strategy. And therefore, what you are trying to do is increase the traffic volume that you're getting to that category and ultimately the sales and revenue. But you do that by improving the search results that you're receiving for a number of search terms in that category. There's no point in thinking of this as a individual search term game anymore. It needs to be a category level, a landing page level. So you can go, this category is benefiting from the activity we're doing that we've targeted to that particular category. Is that how you look at the share of voice? For, like, so you'd look at a category and then just look at all of the different ways that people could potentially search around that particular category that you and that brand and those competitors could fall into? Yeah, I think there's, and Mark touched on this in the article actually, but didn't spell it out as much. But um, from an advertising perspective, um, there's kind of, two ways that you can view the share element of that. So in the example, you said there's someone who goes and looks at newspapers, which again makes me just shiver thinking that that's a, a job that someone uses for, for data. But there's a readership of that newspaper. So there's a potential for the 10 million people that read that newspaper on that day to read that article. Now, that is such a broad statement to make is that every single person who they have a reader and an eyeball view of that article, they're saying every every reader probably saw that article and therefore probably saw that brand mention. Now, 
In the digital space, there is also the concept of impressions. So we know within reason, and there's many caveats to this, but I'm not going to go into those today, but we know within reason that that person saw that advert, they made that search for that search term, or that landing page appeared in the search results for whatever we're talking about, whether that be PPC, whether that be SEO, whether that be on an affiliate website. So the concept of how many people could have seen this ad has two different things. One is potential and one is that we know it was delivered and we see this with things like tv eyeballs in tv the amount of people who potentially saw that versus the video on demand space so if someone sees an advert on youtube for example we know how many people got saw that advert versus tv you have viewership you don't know how many people one are in the household mm -hmm. two are using the same device etc cetera, etc cetera. there's many nuances there so I think one of the first things is when we say share, what are we calculating the share of? Mm. Is it something that can be quantified exactly in the sense of is a is an impression of a person or is it a broad top level number? And then the next bit is what do we actually class as an engagement? What is the quality of that engagement? Whether we're looking at mentions or any type of measurement really is the same age old challenge of earned and paid not having the same kind of data sets because one is one is paid for one is earned or the earned part we just do not have access to the publication analytics and etc etc I mean we might own our specific I suppose in social you have a few more data points that are available to you owned has a lot more because you can see your own analytics but if it's earned it's just that age-old problem of that we just don't have access to the same kind of um, resources um, and data that paid and owned does. That's it's the same, isn't it? It's the same problem. It, it, it is, um, although a lot of people in the paid space would throw their hands up and go, we've just lost all of the ability to do third-party tracking in display advertising, so they can't see anything really anymore. And the PPC world have just lost a ton of data from Google Ads because Google have decided not to give you that information anymore. Again, within reason, because there's certain ways you can get other data. But I think it's uh, a lot of this boils down to Right at the end of this, we're still talking about in, again, in an e-commerce environment, in travel, in financial services, in a lot of sectors, we're talking about revenue generation for an organization, which comes from a conversions point of view, which comes from a visits on a website point of view. There is an off-site conversation to have, but if we talk about just the on online world to start with, to keep this simple, the online world has revenue, sales, visits, and we can, for every channel, see what's going on there and if you are improving the amount of people who come to your website that have a higher quality and therefore they're more likely to convert and it doesn't matter the, the length of time we can still track that and they're converting with higher revenue per conversion then that's a win and you can track that for every sector now what you then need to do is go well how do i define where that person comes from and where my marketing activity has driven an impact there and because of the source of that activity, yes, you get more data in most circumstances from the paid channels. You can go into Google Ads and go, this keyword drove this. In SEO, you can say this landing page drove this, and therefore, here are the terms. So within Ringside, we go into the Google Search Console. We know what search terms are ranking for each particular landing page, and we can apportion a category-based 
uh, revenue optimization score against each category. So then as you improve what you do in both PR and SEO, you can see the impact in the revenue. Now, a lot of this has to be done over a longer period of time. This isn't a, we've got an article on The Guardian and it drove £1,000 worth of revenue, 2000 8000 It doesn't work like that because a lot of PR and SEO, the goal of that is for the longer term as well. It's not just that instant impact. Even for things like product launches, it's also to inject yourself into that conversation is one thing, but to get that legacy value is the difference between a lot of paid and, and owned uh, uh, media because paid is that short term. We pay the money, we get that return within a short time frame, whereas something within SEO and PR has much more legacy value. That's something that we get asked um, a lot from um, some of our coverage book customers where they are being challenged by their clients to have some kind of equivalent spend, because, um, whether that's the way that an ad spend would be. So this ad costs this, and if you had an article on a similar site, it might let's have the equivalent of that. But again, it's that real like, short term of what does this article drive? And it's like being able to look over a long period of time, which is, uh, I guess we need to, from a PR industry perspective, educate our, our clients on that. Going back to how we compare to other competitors, other brand competitors. So how do you do that for your clients? I think one of the the issues we always have, and not to shoot at the uh, in-house people, but so often you, when we onboard new clients, we go, who do you consider your competitors? And they give a list of five companies that you've probably heard of yourselves. And you look at the search results for a generic term so a generic product-based term so it could be we work with a a company that sells skiing jackets and one of the search terms in the top 20 is wikipedia one of them is amazon Uh, one of them will be a more content-led site and then there'll be three competitors that are bidding on that term only with remarketing so you, you wouldn't see them unless you went to their website before from a ppc perspective and then in the search results you're obviously seeing things like wikipedia you see all of the brands that are taking up real estate in that space and this is where there is a correlation from an seo perspective to what you're talking about where you're going into a newspaper because if you are truly looking at share of voice Every single piece of news and every article within a newspaper itself is a competitor for intention. And that's what we're actually talking about here is it could be you've got a full page ad within a newspaper that gets zero attention, or you could have the smallest little article that gets a ton of attention because it's got a really good headline or it's just the thing that people end up reading. So it's always a battle for attention. And that's effectively what share of voice, share of search is playing on, is that we have the ability to interject within a consumer's engagement. So there are two distinct types of marketing. One that is engagement marketing, where the person is proactively doing a search. And this is this, the prime example of that is something like PPC or SEO, where the person who's searched for that topic that category and therefore you're interjecting into that circumstance the other one that's the easiest one to understand is interrupted marketing where you're on facebook and you're scrolling through and you're looking at baby photos and pictures of cats and food and then you get to a point where there's an ad and that has nothing really to do with what you're trying to do on facebook you just see this advert now both of those 
One is way more interruptive, but both of those have a disruption of attention goal is that you have 10 results within uh, the SEO space, give or take again for any SEOs who are questioning that, and then you have four, six, two, whatever it is, PPC results. All of them are battling for your click in that space. Now, in the newspaper, it's even worse because every single word on that newspaper can be associated with something, and all of those are battling for your attention. So I think... When we talk about share of voice in print, that is a very different logic and methodology that needs to be used versus a share of voice in PR because you can actually see how many people have read an article. You can see, within reason, again, reading and, 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 and time on page, et cetera. You can see how many people have come from that article to the site directly. You can also look at trend-based activity on that category to see, okay, so we focused this month on coffee tables, and we've done 20 articles over the period of this month that are focused on a number of different elements around coffee tables. We put a number of placements on a number of uh, publications, and we've been able to see an improvement in the volume of traffic that we're getting to the website off the back of that, and we were able to segment the uh, SEO traffic we're getting, the direct traffic we're getting away from the PPC activity and the paid activity that we're doing, which is going to be different to this. But we can look at the uplift that we've done off the back of that activity. Now, this is way harder in the print space. But if you're in the digital space and this isn't in your roadmap, this is super complicated. And we were saying just before we started recording, all of this should be aspirational to a lot of marketers. This isn't something that you can just go and do tomorrow. There's a lot of work that goes into this. And the biggest brands are doing this, some of them. Some of them are completely naive to the fact. I used to work for one of the largest companies in the world, and SEO and direct were in the same pot. They didn't even consider organic search as a channel. So not everyone is doing this, but a lot of the big brands are going to be doing this behind the scenes because this becomes a competitive advantage. And we have a number of NDAs with brands who don't want to tell their competitors that they work with us for that exact reason, mm. because they don't want their competitive advantage and the data that they make decisions on, which probably looks against the grain to a lot of their competitors. They'll look at their performance and go, why are they spending so much time on this category? It's not, it doesn't drive revenue. Well, actually it does. And over time, they'll start to see that impact. Mm. So I think that that's one of the issues that PRs have. What I just want to focus on for a minute is that everything that you have just talked through is all focused on consumer behavior. That's kind of obvious to you. <laughs> and you're probably going, yeah, of course. Um, and again, maybe it's that it's going on in the background and I don't know about it because I'm not working with them. And like you said, like some people want to keep their kind of market analysis uh, behind closed doors, potentially. But from the share of voice work that I hear of, it's that it's market analysis. And I am Crest Toothpaste, and I want to know how Oral-B Toothpaste is performing. And, and I will hand-select those competitors based on the fact that they have a similar product. And that is a lot of the share of voice, as I say, analysis and research that I'm hearing of from um, different people who do measurement within PR. Now, that's not from the consumer perspective that you've just talked through. And 
and that just feels like that is just a huge <laughs> a huge step one in learning like let's just move away I mean it's kind of pointless right if you're just looking at why why, why do that analysis if it's not down to the consumer and how they're buying yeah I think one of the big issues that people have in FMCG, so fast-moving consumer goods, like you said, like toothpaste, is that you don't have that direct consumer relationship. So it's very difficult to do that. We had the same problem when we were doing stuff with Lego a few years ago before they launched their shop online, is that 90-something percent of Lego sold globally was through a third party. Yeah. Um, so they don't have that relationship with the consumer both from a engagement perspective, but also from a data perspective. They know how much they're sending to Toys R Us to sell on, RIP Toys R Us. Um, <laughs> but they they have they don't get that data. They they get the the this is how many huge tanks we've sent of Lego to this this retailer in this location. But that's not the same as being able to say user one, two, three, four, five saw this product on the website, then they looked at this product, then they bought this product after coming from this particular channel source. So FMCG is a very difficult sector to do this in. And we've done stuff with um, a chocolate bar manufacturer where a lot of the analysis is not a user level, but uh, cohorts. So you can do things in, in cohort analysis from a consumer perspective. Can you give us an example? Yeah, so they had... About 10% of their sales came through direct-to-consumer where they were able to get a, un, an understanding of what people did before they purchased a particular product type and then uh, broke that down into uh, groups of types of users and their behavior. So people who buy on a weekly basis, a monthly basis, and a quarterly basis, people who buy bulk, people who buy singular, people who buy different types of product versus single product categories. And you can understand that type of behavior. That changes massively when you start working. So when we work with supermarkets, for example, you get the FMCG view, but from a consumer of a supermarket. So you see where they buy, obviously, multiple categories all the time, but do they buy multiple brands underneath that category? So are they always buying bold, or do they actually just buy the cheapest product or the one that's on offer, or does it change? And do they buy monthly, or do they buy bulk quarterly? And once you start to segment that by all of the different categories, understanding consumer behavior becomes a thing for FMCG. The problem for the likes of a lot of the big FMCG brands where they own 50 different product types is they don't get that data at the level of granularity that we're talking about in the e-commerce world. And what we're starting to see, and it happened, started happening five, six years ago, and this is the reason why a lot of the big brands have bought out direct-to-consumer companies. So we saw uh, Dollar Shave Club be bought. There's a number of other companies in that sector where... I was going to bring those guys up, actually, as an example. They would never have been named as a competitor to, from Gillette years ago. You know, they, they just came out of nowhere online and then became massive. So who bought those guys? One of the, the Gillette, maybe. <laughs> P&G, maybe I can't remember. Oh, really? Yeah, it was one of the big boys. And But this isn't because they wanted the product. And it wasn't because they wanted the direct-to-consumer because you could knock up a Shopify website and start selling Gillette to people direct to the consumer. 
what they wanted to do is understand the customers. It was a data yeah. play. We started to see this a lot is the value of data for these organizations has been massively undervalued. And this is the reason why data scientist has been the hottest job in the market for the last five years running. It's been number one for five years running. And it's because the value of data for these organizations is huge. The ability for, and let's just say Gillette bought them. I don't think they did, but when if Gillette bought them or the holding company of Gillette bought them, you're going to look whilst I'm talking now. Um, I can tell, but you're, you're doing a little tappy-tappy. Yeah, Unilever. It was Unilever, cool. Yeah. Um, but we've got the ability for these types of brands to go, actually, what types of consumers do this kind of process of, well, actually, is a subscription process something that they're interested in? Did, how often do they buy? But it's a it's purely a data play. It wasn't because they manufacture better razors, and it's not because they can't produce a subscription model. All of those companies can produce those. Everything about that brand, they can produce themselves and probably do it at a better scale and a better service capacity, but they don't have that direct-to-consumer uh, understanding as it stands at the moment. And that's why they buy a lot of those brands. We saw this in a number of other sectors. So we've seen this in dog food. We've seen this in shaving. We see this in plants being like direct delivery to, to households from plants. So the home bases of this world have been selling this, but indoor plants is another sector that's just being bought out at the moment. Um, so there's a number of different sectors where direct to consumer brands, five, 10 years ago, it was the hottest property for a pseudo entrepreneur to start a direct-to-consumer brand. And then all of those are being bought up right now. So it's you've kind of passed the window of easily being able to run that type of company. But this purely comes back to understanding consumer behavior and that and everything in marketing analytics, in web analytics, should be to understand consumer behavior. And that gets missed interpreted as customer behavior, which are two very different things. This podcast is brought to you by CoverageBook, the reporting tool that's made by PR people for PR people. Head to coveragebook.com for your free trial. Okay, so that's where this area of share of search becomes so important, right? Because that's not a brand really focusing on their own consumers and their hand-selected, perceived competitors' consumers. It's people. Real people. So how are you looking at that? Because I think, if, correct me if I'm wrong, the, what you explained before was still looking at who was clicking on ads, who was clicking on content. So share of search is a different different way of looking at things, isn't it? Yeah, so um, we deal with the data part in four different categories. So one of them is reach. This is where you have data that says this marketing activity, whether this be display, PPC, SEO, email, et cetera, we've sent, this has gone out into the world and this is how many people have potentially seen this. That's reach activity where we've literally reached for it. The level below that we call impression. So that's where we have a decent indication that that individual has seen that. So we do this for, say, email, for example, that you have an open in an email. And when that email is opened, we get a, a pixel that says, yes, that person opened that email. And we know that that was in engagement. So the send of an email is the reach, because we don't know whether that's actually going to turn into something. So user 12345 got sent an email. User 12345 opened that email. That becomes the, the level down, which is impression. 
Now, the level down next is engagement. So that user engaged with that email. So they clicked in an email sense. They clicked on that email and they came to the website. And the last one is an event. So that is where that user did something, whether it be a micro event or a macro event, and we covered this off in the in the last time I, I came and speak on this podcast, where that user engaged with your brand. So they didn't just visit, they actually engaged in some way, and, and that goes all the way through to ultimately a macro event where they actually bought from that company. Now that's the data breakdown, but that applies to pretty much every channel. So it's not share of voice, it's not share of search, it's just purely understanding the value of the data set that you have to understand whether it's reach, impression, uh, engagement, or event. And so where that plays out into PR, for example, is the reach activity would be your um, your newspaper, where you go, that, that, got, that newspaper has a circulation of 10 million, which the value of that data is very little because you don't really know anything about the engagement level. Now, if you put a unique URL within that ad that directed people to this the website on a unique tracking code, then you bypass the impression phase and the data you then get is, oh, here are 10,000 people of that 10 million who that was a potential reach of 10 million, but there were 10,000 people who came to this URL, which they could only get from the newspaper. And therefore, that's a, a level of engagement that we can track against that type of marketing activity. Now, within SEO, we get impressions for search results. So we can say we don't have the reach metric, we have the impression metric. But then we also get the clicks and we get the events. Um, and then we got the engagements and the events. So in each different marketing channel, whether we're talking about affiliates, whether we're talking about email, partnerships, display, the, the availability of that data is there. And then it boils down to how you put the understanding behind the insights that comes from that. So what do you put into reporting? But from an analyst perspective is how do you actually turn this into a recommendation or work with the expert in that particular channel to get a recommendation for the next thing you do. Because it's always about what's the output? How does that change what I'm going to be doing in the future? What should I do next? Just on the that literal words of it, the share of search, like how does mm-hmm. that feed into those different activities? Is it based on how people are going into you still have your set of terms that relate to your products your brand and then seeing how many people are searching for that or is it about how many people are searching for your brand in comparison to other brands how does that feed into things one of the things that we do is we go into the google ads api and we pull everything literally it's like a hundred and something different reports from the google ads api for every single keyword and then you go into the google search console uh, api and we pull everything for the same brand and then we build out a map of how many people are potentially saw the ad or the search result for the brand so you then go how many impressions were served for this particular keyword for this particular landing page that could have come to our brand. I just want to like to stop at each stage just to make sure that everyone is clear on it. Yep. Uh, and do you know what? I love an example. Can we can we use an example with this? Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't mind if you want to use an example that, of an industry that you work in, or I can just say. Yeah. So like, let's take the travel sector because yeah. they need a bit of support yes, at the moment. Um, we're working with a, a travel company um, who were wanting to push 
travel towards Asia. That was their market where they they'd started, they'd done a lot of um, commercial negotiations, so they had a lot more products on sale, and they knew that they could and should be generating more traffic than they wanted to. So that, for me, was there's four or five different categories underneath Asia itself, and then underneath each one of those, you've got a number of subcategories that go from a country level all the way through to the activities and the types of hotels. If we just talk about SEO and PR as an entirety, um, and I'm just going to say SEO, but I mean SEO and PR all the time, and then we talk about PPC as, uh, in the same vein. The easiest thing for that company to do is to find all of the types of terms that they want to rank for for all of the, uh, the Asia category and put that into Google Ads and advertise on all of those terms. Now, that comes at a premium. But that's the short-term win. So the first thing that a brand would do in that space is they throw money at the problem, which is the legitimate thing to do, and know that your cost per acquisition for Asia will increase because you're going after a broader audience. So you're probably going for people who are still in their research phase. And this is the important thing here is this isn't just driving the sales within that singular visit. You're going after people who in the travel sector, it takes sometimes up to six months between when someone actually starts looking for a holiday and when they purchase. It tends to be somewhere between sort of three to six weeks, but it, it, can, be, it can be significantly longer. So you've probably got 15, 50,000 terms that are possibly used to target people who are searching for that. Now, in the meantime, from an SEO PR perspective, the same kind of terms are valid, but you're probably not ranking very highly for those terms at the moment. So the, the traffic that you generate from those terms is not going to be as good. So we would know from the Google Ads API how many people are searching for those terms. So we know what the available audience are. And in Google Search Console, we know where we currently rank for the pages that we want to direct people to. Um, and we also know how much traffic is being delivered to those pages because we've got that on the analytics. So within Ringside, we combine all of those data sets together. So you would go, this category has a potential search volume of, and let's just use 100,000 visits monthly because it's easy to do the maths. Um, and that's the search potential. Now, that is effectively the share that you could generate for one of these subcategories could be 100,000 uh, visits, let's just say a week because it's way higher than that, but it's 100,000 a week. Um, but you're currently only getting 2,000 visits to that category on a weekly basis across PPC and SEO. Because someone who types in travel guide to um, Bangkok, you can bid PPC on that and it will cost you way more than it will to rank for that term. And you'll get the legacy value over time for ranking. So the game and this is a long term and it's the game that's constantly played, is where should we be ranking in PPC compared to what we're doing in, in SEO? And, yep. Good question. I like the fact that <laughs> everyone listening doesn't know that you just put your hand up. <laughs> Amazing, like some kind of school chart. <laughs> I do. Whenever I speak to you, I feel like I'm in school. Um, and I do actually sometimes forget that we're on a podcast because I'm learning so much. and putting my hands up. So, yeah, there you go, listeners. Um, I've been called out. What I wanted to ask was, you're, so we're talking about, it's a really great, I love having an example, it, it makes it, uh, brings it to life for me. But what I think what you're talking about is um, being able to 
bids or uh, travel company A. Um, so whether they that their website, their own website is appearing in natural search results and whether you could bid to, uh, for them to appear. What about from not just to click into then go and engage with their content? What if there's articles and other results that the PR team have generated that's all about that brand and then they're taking over all of page one like do you ever consider that I guess that's where I'm just thinking like this is really interesting about how many people you know the hundred thousand people are searching around that topic Um, and then there is that owned website but what about those other results that we could potentially as a PR team have helped generate and take over that page one yeah so I think for the high volume terms there shouldn't be a situation where a uh, a news organisation has taken over page one versus the content that would have more validity in in ranking for the user, which should be the brand that sells the products, because mm. that's really what you want to have on your website, because that's where the valid content is versus the PR article on the on the third party news organisation publication, um, etc. But there is effectively in the long tail, that's exactly where you want to be targeting this. The ultimate goal of the PR activity is to get a link to the website to give validity to the website in that sector. It's the ultimate goal for a lot of organisations, but not all types of PR. Mm. Just because I think some listeners might be like, well, actually, my goal is to change the opinion of of the audience, you know, rather than just... But but yes, um, it should be definitely, if it's not the ultimate goal, it should always be at least a secondary goal. Um, To be able to push that owned content is, is so, so important as... I, think, I guess if anyone doesn't know the reasons why we're finding out right now, because all of those links do help push that owned content up. Yeah, and and even if it's, uh, I think we're sort of covering a little bit onto reputation management here. Um, and even if it's for reputation management, that definitely should be the short term goal. If you're going through a shitstorm of stuff, yes, uh, reputation management is really important, and the ultimate of getting a link probably shouldn't be the priority. But over, if you think of this as that month, your goal is reputation management, but getting a link from a publication to your site that uh, gives you positive publicity in the sense of you're improving the reputation of that brand ultimately is going to benefit you over a much longer period of time than just the short-term fix to reputation management. Mm. Um, And I I saw this with an antivirus company that we worked with many moons ago in three or four brands ago that I worked with, where they got screwed over by their founder, which people can probably find out who that is if they do any Google of antivirus companies, and trying to fix the PR and reputation management of a brand that that, that, user, that person's name is affiliated with, but he has no other affiliation anymore. That was a fun project for, and I say fun, the people doing it probably didn't enjoy it as much. I've worked That's- on those projects. It's, it's a challenge. It's not easy, but it's uh, very rewarding if you can, if you can do it. Yeah, and I, and I think it's it's the the game that you try to play within share a search, which is what we're kind of focusing on when we're talking about the, the, this example. Is kind of going how many people could we potentially engage to bring to our site in this sector, and even if we go down to um, a very niche category. So if you were to do adventure holidays in Thailand, which again is still broad because you can go down to city level, but adventure holidays in Thailand. 
what are you able to improve the volume of traffic you're generating from the 5,000 terms that you've actually got? Because under that category, that will be a combination of content on site. Do, do you deserve to rank for that category is the first question. And when you do deserve to, when you have the content on your own website, how do you get people to come to you? Now, whether that be that you improve your rankings by having links both from a PR perspective and from a generic link building perspective. And then do you deserve that traffic? And, and that's basically what Google is asking when they say we give the best result for the customer, whether we agree with the approach to that or not. But the best result for the customer boils down to do you deserve that traffic? Is this going to add value to the consumer that's arriving at your site? And if you do that for every sub subcategory and all the way up to a category level, then your website and your brand is at the top level of that. And if you look at in every form of marketing, there is a here are the potential people who will see this message. Here are the people who did see the message. Here are the people who engaged with that message. And here are the, the people who engaged with us and had some event with us. If you think of it in that way and then go, how successful are we at each one of those stages? And then move to move the consumer down from a potential engagement through to actually in, in, in having an event with us. Then that's the best way of thinking of share of search, share of voice, etc. Mm -hmm. No matter what levels of data you have available, because uh, like it's not cheap doing the super advanced stuff that we've been chatting about. But even thinking of the methodology of actually, when we say share a voice, what do we actually mean? And secondly, what are we going to do when we have a number, we have a metric that comes out the back of this? What is the share and what is the voice? And what are the two things? And are we going to be able to change what we do tomorrow? Or are we just going to go and put another article in The Guardian? Mm -hmm. um, what is the output? And that should help you infer what you want to get from that level of insight. I think for the listeners on this podcast, I know that I have, uh, we've got a mix of in-house teams and also agencies. And I think that for the agencies, use this information just to start to explore how your consumers and your target audience might be searching. Just start to explore that. Then go and ask some questions to your clients to ask how they might be working with other departments within marketing and looking at this kind of thing to see how you can get involved. For any of our in-house listeners, I think just challenging the way that we do measurement to just stop thinking about the brands that we think are the competitors and just put the consumer right in the middle of it step one um, and then step two to start to see how yeah how they are searching and just quick question because I know that we are running out of time now but um when we do think about how consumers are searching, I know that when I've done this kind of research and insight in the past, um, it's always good to just really put your, you know, we are consumers, we are people, what do we do? Um, and often you, when you start, you take, you remove yourself from um, the brand world of your organisation and your marketing role and you think, oh yes, everyone thinks about us in this way because that's how we market ourselves. Often it's not, it's just like, you know, like you were saying, it might be if they're buying a washing powder, it's just, uh, I've just spilled some red wine on the carpet and I just quickly need to go and get some vanish and I don't care what it is, I just need to get 
get rid of this red wine. I'm going to search for the best one for that. And and that's that's the way the consumer works, not because of whatever advertising campaign Vanish has used recently. Um, you should totally use soda water, by the way. Don't use Vanish. Oh, really? Soda water for red wine, yeah. Wow, I didn't know yeah. that. Gets it out way better. Well, I'll try that this weekend. I've Not got just many marketing red wine stain. <laughs> <laughs> There's a new podcast in this, isn't there? <laughs> Did you realise that you had so many home tips? Yeah, so I think that that for me, when I went from PR to search, that was the biggest mindset change I had to make. It was like, don't believe your brand's message too much. You have to understand consumer behaviour. Um, so a question quickly back to you. How do you prioritise some of these different search terms or the ways that uh, consumers search? How do you know where you should focus? in? Because the, the share of search depends on what you're looking at, what the kind of searches you're looking at, what kind of questions around a category. How do you get that volume? How do you prioritise what you're looking at what you'll have is the volume based thing so you'll be able to know how many people are searching in that category that you could speak to and then you have to play the quality game and go okay let's look at the people who are doing well in that category at the moment and do we deserve to beat them is the the fundamentals here and 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 this this falls down into the remit of the individual um channels themselves and uh, and go okay so if you're taking a particular category and we're doing these uh, sort of ventures holiday uh, venture holidays in thailand for example look at who's one two three four five six seven eight nine ten in the search results if you're 25 and every one of them is doing a better job than you then you don't deserve to be on page one whether you can get there or not is a very different question but do you deserve to be on page one? And do you, what investment do you need to put in there for the reward that you would get by being higher up in the search results, getting more traffic to your website? And then when you do get that person to your website, are you going to be able to convert them over one, two, three, four, eight visits? And what's the revenue generation off the back of that? So you can work out all of those things. The, the manual bit is the do we deserve to? And would the search engine consider us as a deserving brand within that sector? So I think there's the qualitative and quantitative play there. But all of the quantitative data, so how many people are making those searches, what's the current click-through rates that you're able to see in in different areas, um, what kind of revenue do we think we'd generate from that? So it could be that an adventure holiday, because of many different reasons, is 20% more valuable than another type of holiday you sell. That could be the reason why you focus on adventure holidays instead of other types of the vacations that you sell. So I think it's it's understanding the value to the business as well as the opportunity in the marketplace. And so one of the things we talk about a lot is mar- marketplace analysis and then marketplace opportunity. So we go, okay, here is here is the market and this is what you're doing in the market and that's looking historically. But then you go, well, where's the opportunities in this marketplace? Where, where are you not leveraging what you could be leveraging in that space? And I think it's just, it's the fine balance between that. And this is the reason why most people in siloed organizations where they're, Uh, the external agency for a brand or they're the in-house team and they live in their little bucket of I'm in PR, I'm in SEO. I might go and speak to the other person in one other channel, but I don't understand the organization fully. The best organizations break down those silos, which is totally a buzzword bingo. But 
is, is the ability to even understand how the business makes money first, getting to the point of even understanding the margins that we're talking about. And the really good marketing leaders know the P&L off by heart. They know what how much things cost. They know how this channel influences conversions in other channels. And they understand that an adventure holiday makes 20% more. So I can effectively spend 20% more on a user who purchases an adventure holiday than the generic. So I can invest more in that space. And it's just juggling all of those things, which is super complicated. And for some people, they're like, Russell, they're probably, that's wait, I don't give a shit. I'll just go work nine to five, do what I do, and just slowly increase our brand over time. All for you. But I think there's there's certain individuals who will go down that road, get that level of data, and will ultimately win as well. It sounds like it's, it would be a really, it depends what kind of organization it's like. I mean, I've, uh, when I was agency side, I worked for some big organizations where the departments were very siloed, but we did start to go on a journey of introducing the SEO team to the PR department and then the owned content department to the social department. Um, and that when we first started that journey, it was like, wow, they literally walked past each other in the corridor and have never spoken before this is mental i was in a meeting once with a client so i was consulting for the brand and we went to go and meet the uh, agency they've been working with them for about six months and they said oh we've got uh, a bunch more people in the team to introduce you to which is great you walked into the meeting room and the ppc team introduced themselves to the seo team of the same agency and you're like Okay, cool. So you have no clue what each other's doing. So when you've got this joined up thinking, this report that has all of the channels on, you are not talking. You didn't even know that that person worked in the same company. (laughs) They thought they were working for the brand. So you're completely true. It's farcical that happens, but it happens everywhere. But it can change. It can change. See, that's that's quite unbelievable that that was an agency. Um, wow. Uh, I almost feel like they should be called out. I've never worked with that agency. That's crazy. But the client that I had where we were introducing the different departments, six months later, they were reporting together. They were sharing insights and it made a massive difference to especially those that were able to start to put some of the budget that they were pumping into um, advertising into more owned and natural because the natural search was starting to uplift from everyone joining together of course and and that did really work I guess from for the listeners and um, especially if they are in-house to first of all see who within your organization is maybe working in this way but start to bring some of this thinking to the PR KPIs and just starting to look at how I think it's interesting you said it was like a reputation thing but that is really important in in PR as well as increasing the website success but also just how the brand is perceived around some of these search terms and the other results on on that page and um, what other content is being shown whether it is in an article or their other own areas of content so their own social uh, profiles how they're they're looking for these different search terms this is all sort of kpis that can be set and strategy that can be set in in pr and communications um, from the client that should all help with this kind of thing but it's just that I guess the, what I'm taking from all of this is the biggest thing that people in PR can do is don't just stay within your, your brand message. 
should put yourself in the shoes of the consumer and the audience. That's like step one. <laughs> yeah, well, like public relations. <laughs> it's like just Talking gonna to just, the just, just this is the relationship with the public and therefore the big thing that we're talking about in a brand sense is you can replace the public bit with consumers because it's basically the same thing and the relationships is understanding so we've got consumer understanding which is what we spoke about the entire hour i think just um even before for the listeners to go and speak to clients just start to play around with this stuff right just start to have a think about all of the different ways that your audience could be searching little plug here but answer the public is one of the tools that we work on i i not uh, not russell russell has his own own amazing software for some of the stuff that he's just been talking about but yeah answer the public looks at all of the questions that have been put into google around particular topics or or, or, or whatever you put in so it could be toothpaste or coffee tables some of the examples or adventure holidays in thailand pop that into answer the public and it will draw back all of the different questions that are, are going into um google around that particular term it will just give you some a good sort of, it's a bit of an eye-opener sometimes of the ways that people actually search and not how you think that they search, uh, which is which is quite good. It's, it's, it's like when you go back and see your parents at Christmas and you sit, you look over their shoulder while they're using the internet and you're like, <laughs> oh, so that's how <laughs> normal people do searches on Google and it takes them eight different searches to find the website. Oh, okay, yeah. that's, that's different. Yeah, and then you start to put in your strategy, like the misspelling of something. Like that's really important. That could be like a whole huge amount of people are misspelling your brand. But you should, you know, there's still people that are trying to look for you. So. That's right. There's 56 million people a day search for being on Google. <laughs> so really? like, yeah. So like... <laughs> I love that stat. That's brilliant. It might have been the other way around. I can't remember, but it's I, uh, it's ridiculous amount of people who search for each of the search engines on the other one. And you're like, I don't think you understand what's going on here. But, okay. <laughs> I love that. Russell, thank you so much. Um, once again, I've learned so much. I don't think I'll uh, <laughs> realise how many times I've put my hands up in a podcast. I don't think I've ever done it before. It's just with you. Uh, but thank you so much for your time. It's It's been amazing. You're very welcome. Thank you. This is the PR Resolution Podcast. Keep in touch by following me on Twitter at Stella Bales. For more reading on PR, head to blog.coveragebook.com. Don't forget to tune in to the next episode and make sure you subscribe to the series on iTunes now. See you there.